morning. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, we love you and we bless you and we thank you uh, for this day that we have this opportunity to gather together and to be formed and reformed by your word and by your message. We ask that you would be present with us in this uh, discussion this morning, this, this conversation that we have with your text, and that through your presence we would love better. It's in your name, in the name of your son Jesus, and through your spirit that we pray together this morning. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. I'm Ryan. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. This summer in the CLC, we are going through the Hebrew scriptures that are assigned by the lectionary. And we are discussing the crown. The crown for us this summer is the kingship, the head of the monarchy of ancient Israel. Our texts come from the books of First and Second Samuel. Two weeks ago, as we began, Dinah introduced the series by talking about the people of Israel's request, really demand, for a king. They were tired of internal chaos. They were tired of the external attacks that continued to fall on them. And the loosely bound confederation of tribal governance was no longer working for them. And so they naturally wanted to look like the stronger nations that surrounded them. And they requested a king. Then last week, Daryl talked to us about the anointing of David. He was anointed while Saul still reigned. Daryl helped us to see and understand that the ways that we see this world are not always entirely accurate. We may see patterns and assume that things will always work the ways that they were, uh, have worked in the past. We may see people and have certain expectations of what they can do or what they will do. We'll see structures and we'll see institutions and we assume that they'll last and that they'll fill the roles that they were designed to fill but it somehow turns out that our vision may be somewhat dimmed. Fortunately, though, we have a God that sees more clearly. Today, we're going to talk about one of the Bible's most famous stories, uh, the story of David and Goliath. But before we do, we need to talk a little bit more about the bigger picture. One of my teachers has taught me that taking a high-altitude view of the Bible is often help, uh, helpful and so I want to do that today and talk about two things that are important to this story before we get to it. The first thing that I want to talk about is the idea of covenant. Covenant is one of the primary themes of the Hebrew scriptures, the practices of making covenant, of keeping covenant, and even breaking covenant happen over and over within the biblical narrative. You know that there are several covenants that God makes with humanity throughout this narrative, and different scholars count them differently, but there's roughly seven or eight major forms of covenants in the Bible. And today, I want to highlight three of those covenants. As we discuss those covenants, there's a couple of helpful categories uh, that we can assign to them that are helpful in our understanding of these covenants. Some covenants are what is called unconditional that is, the person that makes the promise will fulfill the promise no matter what events or circumstances happen. And then some covenants are called conditional. These covenants require mutual submission to, to a given set of terms. If one party fails to meet their terms, the other party is released from their obligation. And so the first covenant that I want to discuss this morning is the Abrahamic co covenant. 
This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham as Abraham sets out from his father's house to go to the land that God will show him. In this covenant, God promises Abraham numerous descendants and that those descendants will occupy the land that they're given for perpetuity. This covenant given by God is unconditional. God promises this with expecting nothing in return. The second covenant that we need to highlight is the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant's made at Mount Sinai, and here God promises to make the people of Israel into a great and privileged nation of all the nations of the earth. God promises protection and favor to Israel, and this covenant turns out to be conditional. There are certain things that Israel must do to fulfill their side of the story, and it's the Ten Commandments that are given in this covenant. And then finally, I want to highlight the Davidic covenant. Now, at the point in time that we're discussing today, the story of David and Goliath, this Davidic covenant is not yet given, but it's important to the overarching story. And we'll actually talk about the Davidic covenant in a few weeks more in depth, but today we need to understand a couple things about it. First is that this is a promise of a familial dynasty for David. God promises David that one of his descendants will reign on the throne of Israel forever and that the land and the people under this covenant under these kings will flourish this once again is an unconditional covenant God makes the promise and requires nothing in return from David or the people in this covenant in each of these covenants God shows that he's a God that's actually active in the history and in the life of the people of Israel He's liberated people. He's made them his own. He's promised protection for them, tangible descendants, tangible land. God is active in their lives. The second high altitude point that we need to talk about before we talk about David and Goliath is how this section, this overarching section of uh, scripture came together. The books of Samuel fall in a selection of scripture that's called the Deuteronomistic History. It's a big word, but this history encompasses several books of the Hebrew scriptures. It starts in Deuteronomy, moves through Joshua, into Judges, through the books of Samuel, and finishes with the books of Kings. Now these books, this history was compiled and redacted in a particular moment in the history of the people of Israel. And this moment played a huge part in forming the message of these books. In 587 BCE, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Thousands of people from Israel were marched into exile, and it was these exiles that finally put these books together. It was these exiles that had questions that they wanted to answer, things that they wanted their people to know in regard to their history and how they got to where they are. Can you imagine what a people in exile might ask? A people that think they have unconditional um, promises made to them by God. Promises of land and descendants and kings. They might ask, what happened? How do we get here? Is this God that's been active in our history in the past actually active in our history? Is this God actually capable of salvation? What happened to our kings? What do we do now in the face of this challenge? 
And so with these questions in your hearts and minds, I ask you to listen to these words as I read to you from this Deuteronomic history. This portion of verses is from 32 to 49 of the first Samuel chapter 17. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are just a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and struck down a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth, and if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and he put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David, with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and spear and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army to this very very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. This is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, this story encompasses 58 verses of chapter 17. It's the whole of chapter 17 in 1 Samuel. It is one of the longest continual stories that you'll actually find in these books. We read about a third of those verses. In the opening of the verses, the setting for the story is given. The Philistines and the Israelites have gathered their armies for battle, and Israel is camped on a large hill to the north, while the Philistines are camped on a large hill to the south, and between them runs the valley of Elah with a dry creek bed running through it. Where these armies meet is a region in the land of Canaan that lies between the coastal plains where the city-states of the Philistines exist 
and the Judean mountains of the people of Israel. These foothills are where these two peoples meet throughout the biblical narrative. The famous part of this narrative is the actual fight, but, the surpri- but surprisingly, the author only uses two verses to describe this fight. Rather, this narrative is driven by characterization and by a series of speeches that these characters make. The first character that's described in the chapter is Goliath. In some sense, Goliath is supposed to be a stand-in for the whole of the Philistine army. And for those later readers, Goliath represents the Babylonians. He's huge. He's well-equipped. He's confident of his skill and assured of his superiority. The Philistines at this point in history were easily the most powerful people in Canaan. They were known for their military prowess, both on the sea and on the land. They'd occupied this land for a couple hundred years before this encounter, even fighting off Egypt to maintain control of this fertile piece of land. A couple chapters before this story, in chapter 13, a very important piece of information is given regarding this battle between these people. Verse 19 of chapter 13 reads, Now there was no smith to be found throughout all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, the Hebrews must not make swords or spears for themselves. So all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, and sickles. Israel was at a distinct disadvantage. Not just because of the number and the skill of the warriors, but because of this technology. Israel had no smiths. They relied on their enemies even to maintain their tools of agriculture. When Goliath is described, careful attention is given to his armament. Defensively, he has a bronze helmet, a coat of mail, greaves, and a man that carries a shield for him. As for offense, in addition to the scimitar on his back, he carries a spear, and this spear has a head of iron. Iron, in this day, was a new technology. It was maintained more easily and made more readily and maintained an edge longer than bronze. Naming the iron in Goliath's armament implies the technological advantage that the Philistines had as well. Goliath's speeches are equally intimidating. Today I defy the ranks of Israel, he says. He shouts as he offers his challenge. The Hebrew word for defy carries a connotation of deep, deep shame. Goliath is attempting to shame the armies of Israel and it works for 40 days. The text says that Saul and the armies of Israel are broken. They're shattered in terror by his words and by his appearance. You know, I actually follow biblical archaeology pretty closely, and they have recently found an ancient but remarkably lifelike depiction of Goliath as he rallies the Philistine troops. Can we see that? There he is. (laughs) Goliath rallying the troops in all of his terror, tall and menacing. Saul is the next character that we see in this chapter. 
Saul is quickly becoming exactly what Samuel predicted he would be. He's conscripted a standing army. He's picked a fight with his neighbor that's bigger and better at fighting than he is. He's had moments of brilliance. But as David is introduced into the story, Saul is more and more depicted as jealous, as afraid, and as ineffective. When Saul was made king, he was specifically anointed by Samuel to protect the people from the Philistines. And yet he continually puts his people in the path of the Philistines instead. Physically, Saul mirrors Goliath. He's tall, he's strong, and the text even says that he's handsome. It's his relative lack of speech in this narrative that actually stands out and betrays his own character, uh, cowardice. First, he merely says that he's scared to send a boy into combat because the results would be devastating, and he's right. But it's a short speech. And it's only after David convinces him that Saul acknowledges that there is a God in the picture in this story. Surprisingly enough, archaeologists have also recently found a depiction of Saul as he's asking who's going to fight Goliath. Not very convincing. Finally, we come to our hero, to David. David in this story is described as a dutiful son. When the story begins, he's both attending to the flocks as a shepherd and he's running supplies back and forth for his brothers who have joined Saul's army. He's the youngest of Jesse's children and actually called a boy a number of times in this story. Here's what's unique about David, though. When he hears the giant's words and when he sees the giant's appearance, he is not struck with terror. He's the only person in this story that views this issue as theological. It's not just the armies of Israel that Goliath defies, but the armies of the living God. This theological orientation gives David a confidence that nobody else in this story can maintain or justify. He quickly goes to Saul to volunteer for the challenge and convinces him to let him fight by ensuring Saul that it is not just David that goes into this battle, but that the Lord who saves goes with him. The Bible says, Lord, and this word calls us back to the Exodus narrative. David is telling Saul that the God that has enabled him to overcome lion and bear is the same God that set the people free from Israel or from Egypt. And it's this same God that will deliver them from the Philistines. Saul's response is to try to outfit the boy in a poor mimicry of what's actually threatening them. He dresses him in his own armor. It's only after David reframes this event theologically that Saul's remembers that Saul remembers that God is in this picture, that God can be a part of this story. When David finally steps into the valley to face this giant, Goliath taunts him again. Remarkably, the language that Goliath uses in his threats and that David tosses right back to the giant is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 28, where God warns the people of exile. David then lets fly the words that define this whole encounter. David says he'll win the battle so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and by spear. But the battle is the Lord's. 
David's victory is not meant to make himself famous, though it certainly does both in the biblical narrative and in today's world. David's victory is supposed to make known that the Lord lives and reigns in Israel and that he does not rely on the normal means of victory. The answer to some of those big questions that we asked in the beginning are found in this story. Is God the God of history? This story says yes. God is still active in the midst of these challenges. Has God been faithless to his own covenants? The answer is no. God shows up in history to deliver his people from their enemies, whether they're Philistine or Babylonian. What do we do now? David took his shepherd's tools into battle. Tools that he would have used over and over every day to protect his flock. What we do now is what we know how to do to protect our people. The dry creek bed in the valley of Elah can still be visited to this day. I've been lucky enough to visit that valley. These are actually five smooth white stones from that same creek bed that David took his stones from. When I see these stones or when I think of that valley, they remind me that when I face the challenges that I face, that when I feel far from home and far from God and far from protection, that this early story of David is a model that I can follow. That like him, I can rely on the living God and throw the stones that I know how to throw. Now, like Saul, David is described as good-looking. He's described as ruddy, which means red-complected, red-haired. You guys wouldn't believe it. But they've also found an ancient depiction of David practicing throwing his stones. (laughs) Would you all pray with me? Blessed are you, Lord, our God, creator of this universe who gives us life and sustains our lives and brings us together in this very moment. We bless you, God, uh, for this story, for this epic story that's so popular in our world, um, a story that we are often reminded of you in when we see it in the news and in movies and in stories all over the place. May we remember, God, when we do hear this story, that it's not just a story of a small boy overcoming a giant, but that it's a story that reminds us that you are indeed a living God, a God that interacts in history to deliver and to save us from all that we're challenged by. We bless you for that, God. We bless you for the gift of your son who lived and died for us. We bless you for the gift of spirit that gives us life.